Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're watching Battleground with Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. We'll be bringing you smart conversations for smart people stream direct to your smart TV or smartphone. It doesn't get smarter than this. And the technological miracle you'll need to watch this show is the ADH app. It's easy to download and better still, it's even free. Just go to adh.tv or the Apple or Google Play stores. Tonight on Battleground, we'll be talking to Oliver Hartwich, Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative, to ask the question, is New Zealand in danger of becoming a failed state? Before that, I'll be joined by Amanda Stoker to swap notes on some of the burning policy questions of the day, particularly inflation and who's to blame. But first, when Scott Morrison selected his cabinet, he chose one of the smartest minds in Parliament for the energy portfolio. His successor adopted a quite different approach and put Chris Bowen into the job. It was apparent from day one that Bowen was out of his depth. His pugnacious attitude cannot hide his failure to grasp the complexity of the task he's been assigned. Bowen has a dubious distinction of delivering Labour's first broken promise. He promised last December that the average family's power bill would decrease by $275 a year in Labour's first term. He reassured us that that figure was backed by the most extensive modelling ever conducted by an opposition. Bowen and Prime Minister Albanese repeated that promise at least 15 times before the election. Well, now that they're in government, they've dodged every opportunity to repeat the promise. So we must assume that they know that the modelling was bunkum and that the $275 power cut bill reduction won't be happening. Well, the same discrediting modelling was used to set Labour's 43% emissions reduction target for 2030. Their modelling claimed that that could be met without losing jobs or damaging the economy. Well, now that the modelling's been discredited, Bowen and Albanese should walk away from their target. And it shouldn't be hard. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine affords them the opportunity to think again about energy, just as other Western nations are doing. But instead, Bowen and Albanese decided to double down, negotiating with the Greens to lock it into legislation. That will accelerate the closure of coal-fired power plants for which there's no viable alternative. 
The Australian energy market operator has filled in some important details from Boeing's quick and dirty pre-election modelling. Its 2022 integrated modelling system plan shows that the scale of the task to which Labor is now legally committed is great. To meet Labor's 2030 target, AEMO says that 60% of our coal generation capacity must be scrapped. It says we'll have to increase the energy we can store from 2 gigawatts to 15 gigawatts by 2030. Grid-scale wind and solar must rise from 16 gigawatts to 44 gigawatts. Rooftop solar must increase from 15 gigawatts to 35 gigawatts. And that's only the start. If we want to hit the magic zero emissions by 2050 without the benefit of new technology, like nuclear, for instance, we'll need 30 times more storage capacity, five times more rooftop solar, and nine times as many windmills and solar farms. Plus, we'll have to spend billions of dollars upgrading poles and wires to increase the capacity of the grid. Does Boeing have any idea what that's going to do to our landscapes? Untold swathes of farmland will be covered in solar panels with an estimated lifespan of just 25 years. What happens next? Nobody quite knows. The challenge of rehabilitating the land and disposing of millions of tonnes of photovoltaic panels has barely been considered. Let me just give you one example of what these mega renewable farms will look like. The Renewable Energy Corporation Lightsource BP is planning to build 400 megawatts of solar facility, solar facility on the Gundry Plains near Goulburn. It'll cover six square kilometres of farmland, transforming the landscape beyond recognition. It'll erode biodiversity, cause rapid rainfall water runoff and decrease the amount of carbon held in the soil. If we were to rely on solar alone for extra renewables, AUMO says, AUMO says we'll need by 2050 312 mega solar farms the size of the one proposed near Goulburn. In total, they cover an area more than twice the size of Canberra. And what's more, there's a big difference between the stated capacity of wind and solar and the energy they actually produce. Coal-fired power plants are coal-fired plants are capable of producing 100% of their capacity. Small modular nuclear reactors can deliver 95%. Wind generators, however, produce barely a third of their stated capacity, and solar generators are the least efficient of all, generating as little as 20% of their stated capacity. In other words, to go down the path Boeing is taking us is stark, staring, bonkers. And it's massively expensive and highly inefficient. It is socially and environmentally destructive. Boeing's claim that energy will be cheaper once we reach the government's target of 82% renewables is an insult to our intelligence. Yet insulting our intelligence is what Boeing likes to do. Recently in Question Time, he said... We know the sun doesn't send a bill, the wind doesn't send an invoice, something that the honourable members opposite haven't worked out yet. Well, here's something that Boeing hasn't worked out yet. There is another way to reduce net emissions to zero 2050 without risking jobs, crushing the economy and despoiling the landscape. It's by using small-scale modular reactors. And I'll have a lot more to say about them in due course. We've been in denial about inflation for far too long, in my view. Before we start talking about what governments can do about inflation, let's be clear about what governments have been doing to cause it. If you listen to Joe Biden, you'd think that inflation had been visited upon us by forces beyond our control. Take a look. I understand 
Inflation is a real challenge to American families. Today's inflation report confirmed what Americans already know. Putin's price hike is hitting America hard. Putin's price hike is hitting Americans hard? Not exactly, Mr. President. The truth is that inflation in the US starts in Washington, just as inflation in Australia starts in Canberra, with the collusion of people in Sydney who run the Reserve Bank. We've yet to disprove Milton Friedman's theory that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary problem. It's caused by governments that print money and spend it. Here's Milton Friedman speaking back in 1978. Inflation is made in Washington because only Washington can create money. And any other attribution of an, to other groups of inflation is wrong. Well, let's bring in Amanda Stoker into this discussion. Amanda's a distinguished fellow at the Menzies Research Centre and a former senator. Let me put it to you first, Amanda, that Treasury and the government should have been onto the threat of rising inflation much faster than it was. Uh, and by that, I mean the government in which you served until recently. Do you agree? Look, I think that's certainly a big part of the story. The reality is that during the time in which people were most panicked about COVID-19, the government printed a lot of money, the government spent a lot of money. Um, some of that was for uh, necessary things, but the fact is there's more money in the system. That has consequences, and in many ways the experience we're having now isn't just about international conflict and it's not just about supply chains, it's also the hangover from that period of government decisions. Well, we are where we are, of course, and the Reserve Bank is acting swiftly, if, be, if belatedly, to uh, tighten money supply by lifting the overnight lending rate. Uh, the Albanese government, however, seems to be in denial. It's sticking to its policy settings that only make things worse, starting with its energy policy, as I argued at the top of the show. Labor's 43% emissions target for 2030 is already driving energy prices higher, and things will only get worse, I suspect. What does this mean for the cost of living? Well, it means um, some really serious and difficult times for families and for people who are already struggling with making ends meet. The first principle of a government should be, you know, first do no harm, think like a doctor. Um, and it is really important that not just governments understand the need to rein in spending, but that they don't implement policies that make the situation worse. And I'm afraid you can think of many examples that pop to mind like that, of policies that are being pressed that are going to make that situation so much worse. Well, you're right, Amanda. It doesn't stop at energy policy, it does it. Uh, there are other poor policy choices by the Albanese government that, are, that will be fueling inflation if they're not already. Uh, have you got any, any in mind? Well, you're right about energy policy. A 43% target by 2030 doesn't just make the price of an energy bill more expensive, it makes everything that requires energy in the supply chain more expensive. And that translates from everything to manufactured goods, to agricultural products, the cost of transport, and ultimately what's in your supermarket trolley. But food is only a part of the story. Energy is only a part of the story. Housing and construction is a big part of the cost of living. By abolishing the ABCC, Labor is giving the green light to the kind of union thuggery that we know makes projects less viable here in Australia, makes it more expensive to deliver the construction that we know Australians need for housing, particularly in times of shortage. We also see 
um, inflationary effect in what Labor Orwellingly calls best practice procurement policy, but in effect means um, that tenderers for government projects must take on the effectively ambit claims of the relevant unions in order to be competitive in contracts and, of course, to force that onto the subcontractors. We also find um, these inflationary effects um, in the approaches I think we can expect to see emerge out of this um, job summit. It's really um, a nice little cloak for shuffling through many of the inflationary policies that unions demand uh, without having had to take them to an election. A way of calling it um, the delivery of expert advice rather than the kind of deep labour inflationary policy that would have scared the horses before an election. Together, these are really going to make life so much harder for Australians. And I think as taxpayers, we need to get angrier than we are about the effect on infrastructure costs of the sweetheart deals with the unions. The CFMEU premium, if you like, is about 40%. That's roughly what it costs. You add to any project 40% if you're going to play it by the rules the unions want to play it by. So that means that we build 10 kilometres a road when we should be getting 14 kilometres for it. We're building a 200-bed hospital when we should be getting 280 beds. There's real cost to this, isn't it? It's not just money that comes out of nowhere. There are real costs. Those costs are borne by taxpayers, um, both in terms of fewer services and less economic opportunity that comes from having top-class infrastructure. Um, but we also we carry the bill. We carry the bill and we carry it in an intergenerational way. And in many ways, um, governments don't have enough skin in the game of keeping the lid on this, but neither too do the unions or the companies involved. They can just adjust the bill because when they're dealing with big numbers and taxpayer carrying the can, um, they don't feel the same pressure that the rest of the community does. And it's bred a kind of complacency that makes it seem as though these numbers um, don't matter when, in fact, they matter a great deal to this across-the-board feeling of inflation. Amanda, I think it's important to learn from mistakes in public policy, which is uh, why I'm frustrated, to see, say the least, that neither side of politics is pressing for an inquiry into the way we managed COVID-19 as a nation. Now, any inquiry should, of course, acknowledge that it, difficult and expensive decisions had to be made on the run with incomplete knowledge of the behaviour of the virus, what's happening in the economy, and we might make different decisions with hindsight. Nonetheless, it does seem beyond doubt that the exceptional level, levels of government spending in the pandemic, not just in Australia, of course, but around the world, are in a big, a big part of the inflation story. Um, should we? Is it time for some truth-telling on the, these, on the fiscal management of COVID? I think there is real merit in conducting an inquiry of that kind, not in the nature of a witch hunt, though there will be many people in our community that have their axes to grind on, on this front. But unless we are able to acknowledge what was done, what worked and what didn't, we won't have a good roadmap for avoiding some of the mistakes. The next time there's a, a virus or a monkeypox or, or some other type of challenge of this nature. If we are serious about protecting um, not only our economic position, but also the fundamental freedoms that got encroached upon so greatly by predominantly state governments, but let's face it, by governments at all levels to some degree, then we need to, I think, take a good hard look 
about how the actions that were taken align with the fundamental um, rights that Australians should have, what is and is not in our constitution. And we also need to, I think, reach some consensus about what we agree as a community never to do again. Um, that is the kind of mature discussion that I think could set us up well in future challenges, which will inevitably come. Well, uh, I must say, uh, I, I'm speaking for many, I think, when I say that now we've reached the end of the, the worst of COVID-19. I'm looking forward to getting back to being a fiscal conservative again. Um, <laughs> yes, Amanda, please. <laughs> it'd be nice, wouldn't it? But on that, what advice should we be giving Jim Chalmers? Should he be knocking on our door asking for it as he begins to prepare his uh, first budget in October? He's going to be surrounded, no doubt. You'd have seen this in your time in Parliament. I can't hear him knocking. I can't hear him knocking, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> You'd remember, you know, the, the, the sensation in Parliament of being surrounded by ministers asking to back your particular project. What should he be doing? Look, I think it's really important that first... He does no harm, no policies that are going to make inflation worse. Um, I think it's really important that there is a commitment to developing those parts of Australia that are our breadbasket, that are our future mining and manufacturing opportunities, because unless we are putting new wealth into Australia, um, we're in a bit of a dangerous cycle of just sort of providing services to one another. There needs to be um, wealth creation going into our system because that benefits everybody. Anything that unlocks that, that great northern and, and middle part of Australia and all of its, um, its riches, I think, is really important work to do. And to do it all with an eye to the shopping cart and the bill wad of the ordinary family, I think, would be wise politically. Um, it would be a very big mistake, however, to say we're at the start of a political term, now's the time to allow our union backers to cash in all of their checks because if they go really hard down that route, they will make inflation worse, they will alienate normal Australians and they will create the kind of um, thuggery and chaos that makes Australia a terrible place to invest. Um, there are opportunities and risks in this budget and let's hope um, he's got the right people knocking on his door. Thank you, Amanda. Good as always to talk to you and look forward to welcoming you on the show again next week. Good on you, Nick. Thanks. Thank you. Well, tonight on Battleground, I'm delighted to be joined by Oliver Hartwich. Oliver Hartwich is a Wellington-based economist who runs the New Zealand Initiative, the country's sharpest think tank. He was born in Germany and worked in Britain and Australia before moving to New Zealand eight years ago. Like me, he's deeply troubled about the direction the country has taken under Jacinta Ardern. As he wrote in The Australian recently, in all, the picture that emerges is the country is in precipitous decline. That would be alarming enough. What makes it even more so is a perception that the core private and public institutions lack the understanding of the severity of the crisis or the ability to counteract it. New Zealand needs to be careful not to turn into a failed state. That does not mean it should expect civil unrest but a period of prolonged and seemingly unstoppable decline across all areas of public life. Well, Oliver, they're strong words. Do you resile from any of them? No, I think I was still putting it diplomatically, but anyway, great to be with you, Nick. 
Yeah, so I've been here for a decade now and I've seen New Zealand change almost beyond recognition. The country I moved to in 2012 was actually a fantastic place to move to, especially from Australia. I came right out of the chaos of the Rudd and Gillard years. And when I arrived to New Zealand, I thought I had found a home because I was for the first time in many, many years. You mentioned I lived in Britain and Germany before that and Australia, of course. Um, I was living under adult government with John Key and Bill English, and it felt great. But what we've seen here over the last five years, the government of Jacinda Ardern has completely changed the country beyond recognition. And I think New Zealanders are now slowly waking up to the crisis that is thrusted upon them. We have a problem in fiscal policy where our government has spent way too much during COVID. We have a problem in monetary policy where our Reserve Bank has lost its way. We have a problem actually with race relations because this government is now trying to divide New Zealanders into Maori and non-Maori, something that wasn't really there when I arrived 10 years ago. So this country has problems on every single level. We can talk about the education system. We can talk about the housing market. We can talk about health. We can talk about free waters. There is not a single area of public policy in New Zealand these days that is not in crisis. Well, first, let's go to some of the structural issues because a democracy needs strong institutions and conventions to keep it in check. Uh, Three-year elections, elections every three years, of course, we've both got those and I think they're very helpful. But then in Australia, we have a constitution, we have an upper house, uh, we have a federal system where power is divided between state and Commonwealth governments. You, of course, have got none of those in New Zealand. Is that part of the problem? Is too much power concentrated on one government? Yeah, basically the way the New Zealand election system works, the electoral system works, is it's an elected dictatorship. So for three years, if you're in power, you are in power and there's very little stopping you. So there's no federalism in New Zealand. There's very limited local government. There is no constitution, at least not a written one. There is no constitutional court. There is MMP, at least. That's the electoral system, which New Zealand inherited from Germany almost 30 years ago. And that normally stops the excesses of power because it binds um, part, parties together into coalitions. It is very unusual, almost unheard of under MMP to get a one-party government, but that's what New Zealand got in 2020. As a result of COVID, New Zealand had a, an election in 2020 in which New Zealanders voted for Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party and gave it an unprecedented absolute majority in Parliament. That was not supposed to happen under MMP. And basically, it means that Jacinda can now govern without any checks or balances. We get three years of pure labor. And unfortunately, the country and the country's constitution isn't really made for that. Well, Jacinda Ardern put in place some of the toughest lockdown conditions anywhere in the world, certainly outside of China, thinking she could pursue a zero COVID policy. And in June 2020, she announced that she got there, that they'd eradicated COVID from New Zealand, because now things are very different. I mean, the latest figures uh, in New Zealand, uh, there have been around 330,000 COVID deaths per million population. Uh, that's slightly fewer than Australia, uh, but uh, still in the same zone. When it comes to COVID deaths, the figures I've got, Oliver, 400 uh, Australian deaths per million stand at 482. Australia slightly lower at 476, Japan at 269. Now, to put that in context, of course, uh, the UK have many times more deaths as, as, as most European and American countries do. But, you know, she did not achieve what she said she would do, did she? Which was to keep the curve flattened until there was a vaccine that was capable of controlling transmission. None of that happened. <laughs> 
Well, she kept COVID out of the country largely for a couple of years. Um, so we can give her that. Um, we had the first real COVID wave in New Zealand once the country was vaccinated. So if you compare the cumulative deaths in New Zealand to the cumulative deaths in the US or in Europe, you can see that, of course, we are still way behind uh, these figures that we would have seen in other places. So in that sense, it has worked. What hasn't worked is, of course, um, the delivery of the vaccine. For example, we were very slow to implement it, and that meant we were slow to reopen the country. We were slow to reopen the borders. I mean, the last bit of the border opening only happened last week. So basically, for two and a half years, New Zealand turned itself into a hermit kingdom with borders that were virtually close to non-New Zealanders and very hard to cross, even for New Zealanders. So we had cases here where people tried to get into the country to be with their loved ones, to be with their families at times of you know, deaths or marriages or whatever celebrations they had. They couldn't get in. We had the most interesting case, perhaps, with a New Zealand journalist, Charlotte Bellis, who was stuck overseas while pregnant. She wanted to give birth in New Zealand and couldn't get in. Unfortunately, she didn't have a visa for anywhere else. And so because she had previously reported from Afghanistan, she asked the Taliban, whether they would give her asylum. And the Taliban were kinder to Charlotte Bellas than even her own government in New Zealand. So it took a media storm until the New Zealand government allowed a pregnant New Zealand to, to get back into the country. So can you imagine that? So this is the government that liked to portray itself as kind and interested in their citizens' well-being. But in practice, it meant they were quite cruel to a number of New Zealand families, really locking them out of their own country. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the basic freedoms that were surrendered in New Zealand and elsewhere, but notably in New Zealand, were, were something I guess you and I would never have expected to see in a democratic country. Uh, do you think that those, uh, you know, have we now put those behind us or, or is there a danger that some of those measures that were introduced, some of those intrusive measures may be used in other circumstances or continue in some way? Well, for the largest part, fortunately, we have left them behind, but it has given us a precedent. The precedent is actually that it shows politicians what you can do if the population lets you get away with it. So that was the most shocking thing, really, to see the compliance of the New Zealand people, to see how far New Zealand people are willing to go along with the government imposing quite draconian measures. I mean, the lockdowns we had here in New Zealand, they were probably much harsher than lockdowns, say, in European countries, probably on par with what happened in Victoria, Australia. But yes, it was quite shocking to see how compliant such a population can be. And it's something I would have never expected to see in a country like New Zealand, which is still in the tradition, of course, of British institutions, of the British style of democracy, of the, of the rule of law, and suddenly you find yourself locked into your own home for six weeks and you're not legally allowed to venture more than two kilometers past your place of ordinary residence. So this kind of compliance really shocked me. And also the degree of conformity in public opinion, because there was very little in terms of questioning whether the measures taken were the right ones. People basically went along and they were willing even to tolerate some probably unlawful behavior by the elected officials. Yeah, and part of that, I guess, is the media. The New Zealand media is uh, is pretty uniform, right? There's not a lot of diversity. And and from the from the conversations like this I've done with you in the past and we put online, I'm willing to bet that the majority of people who actually watch this interview will be in New Zealand. So they're looking to sources outside New Zealand to tell them about their own country. This is an incredible situation, isn't it? 
It is. Um, so you're right. Whenever we do interviews in Australia, I can see these interviews coming back to New Zealand and then people say, well, actually, it would be nice if we could see this on New Zealand television or read interviews like that in our New Zealand newspapers. So, yes, the New Zealand media are quite weak. They have for a long time been compliant, actually, with um, all of these measures and they were not questioning them too much. I mean, that is a generalization. There are some good journalists still working in New Zealand, but you can basically count them on two, well, probably two hands. By and large, the New Zealand media is underfunded. Um, so, for example, we don't have any international correspondents left. I think by my count, maybe five or so. And uh, the newspapers are quite thin. We are reporting a lot on sports, on the weather, on human interest stories. But there is a lack of discussion and deep debate on the real issues that will determine the future of this country. So we've got a bit of a problem in our media. And therefore, I'm not surprised that whenever we cover New Zealand at, in depth, in overseas channels like yours, we will have a big audience in New Zealand because that's the kind of content that people cannot actually find in New Zealand itself. Let's uh, look at other policy areas. And, and the question I want to put to you, Oliver, is why has Ardern been so spectacularly unsuccessful at any of the reforms she promised? I mean, for instance, in housing, she promised 100,000 affordable homes, uh, the exact figure, well, you can tell me, but it, it's, it's somewhat smaller than that, isn't it? I mean, it's just not been a government that's very good at doing the things that it says it's going to do. That is the biggest weakness of our government, its delivery, or rather the lack of delivery. And you're asking, why is that the case? Well, my theory is that the government simply wasn't prepared for government. In 2017, for a long time, the Labour Party was at about 20% in the polls until about six weeks before the election when the then party leader, Andrew Little, resigned and handed over to his deputy, Jacinda Ardern. So Jacinda Ardern came out of relative obscurity. She was young, she was fresh, she was new, she was positive, she had a big smile, and that basically propelled her to 36, 37% in the election. And then she was lucky because Winston Peters decided to go with her. So she found a coalition partner. The Greens supported that arrangement. And suddenly she had more than 50% of the seats in Parliament. And she was Prime Minister. But until about six, seven weeks before the election, it didn't look like that at all. It looked like it would yet be another resounding election defeat for the Labour Party. And that's why Labour simply wasn't prepared. Yes, of course, they talked about um, great ambitions. They wanted to eradicate child poverty. They wanted to build the 100,000 homes. They wanted to deliver all sorts of good things, but they had never really thought deep and hard about how to achieve that because the chances of them actually being on the treasury benches were so remote that they didn't even really dare to prepare for that. And so what we saw in the first term of the Erdogan government from 2017 to 2020 was a flurry of, of working groups, of inquiries. So by my count, they had but more than 200 such working groups where they were just trying to figure out, OK, we're in government now, so what the hell are they going to do with that? And of course, they didn't get much done. So the first term was a wasted opportunity where a lot of talk happened and not much delivery. You mentioned the 100,000 homes target. That was very ambitious. It came out of a party conference, I think, in 2014, 15, something like that. Actually, the stories I heard about that target, initially that was supposed to be 50,000, and at the party conference on a Saturday night, they thought, well, 100,000 sounds a lot better, let's make it 100,000. This is the kind of policy making that happened in opposition, and you get away with that in opposition because you don't have to implement it. Once in government, it comes a bit harder, and the actual figure on houses delivered from the 100,000 houses target is a bit more than 1,300 after five years. So you can see 
this was a party simply not prepared, not ready for government. And then, of course, we had a few other crises to deal with. We had the Canterbury terror attacks. We had the Wild Island volcanic eruption. Then we had COVID. And so basically, not much got done in the first term of the Erdogan government. Well, of course, she has achieved some things, largely the ideological crusade she, she set out to accomplish. You know, the woke policy, if you like, particularly in the field of of uh, Maori, of Maori relations and uh, Maori empowerment. Can you begin to explain to me where the country is at on that? Yeah, I would be hesitant to explain that to you, at least not without um, a foreword, because I want to just clarify that I never regarded myself as racist. <laughs> and the other thing is, of course, since you mentioned I come from Germany, and of course you could never tell from my accent, um, I'm very hesitant to enter these race debates. <laughs> so from my experience, whenever you live in a foreign country, there are some debates that you rather leave to the locals because they are just too sensitive for you to engage in as a recently arrived foreigner. I mean, you've probably had the same experience when you moved to Australia. Same here. So I try to stay out of that. But the problem is these days, there is practically no policy in New Zealand left where there isn't some race component attached to it. So reluctantly, I'm getting into that. I should also say, of course, I think of myself as a non-racist. I'm a classical liberal. I believe in equal rights for everybody. I don't care what you believe in. I don't care what the color of your skin is. Um, that's basically where I'm coming from. So with that forward, what is the government doing? Well, basically, we have a government now where about a quarter of the Labour caucus belongs to the Maori caucus. And they have some very specific ideas on how they would like to reform policymaking in this country. And it's basically along racial lines. So separate rights, special rights, um, privileges, if you like, for one group of the population, which comprises around about 15% of all New Zealanders, and then different rules um, and different uh, ideas and different policies for the remaining 85%. And so what we're getting, for example, is now a separate Maori health authority. So this country now has two health systems. It has one for Maori and one for non-Maori. We have another um, development that we could see last week. So there is Environment Canterbury. That's the regional council of the Canterbury region, so the area around Christchurch. And since last week, we have two councillors that are not elected councillors, but councillors appointed by the Iwi, so by the Maori tribe of the area. And so it is basically giving Maori an extra vote on the council, well, two extra votes, while also, of course, allowing Maori still to vote. So if you're Maori, if you're living in Canterbury, you can vote for the general council. And on top of that, you can also appoint two extra councillors with full voting rights. So I would say, actually, from a democratic principles background, you would say this is not fair because typically we have one person, one vote. Well, except in the case of Canterbury. And this is the kind of policy now that Labour wants to roll out across the whole country. So we will see that now in Rotorua probably next. And um, basically it adds a racial component to every aspect of public policy, whether you like it or not. Another area, water. So New Zealand councils built up water infrastructure, so for sewage, for fresh water, for storm water. All of this was built, of course, after the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840. So ratepayers have paid for this over generations. Now Labour comes along, effectively confiscates it from councils and then puts a governance structure in place where 50% of voting rights in governance of these entities will rest with tribes. 
well, again, this is not quite my understanding of local democracy. And I think it is deeply unfair to ratepayers who've paid for this infrastructure, you know, billions of dollars over more than 160 years, or actually 180 years almost. So really, where New Zealand is heading with this is into a very, very dangerous um, set of circumstances that remind one more of apartheid regimes, where there are separate rights for separate groups of people, but it's moving us further away from the old British democratic ideal of one person, one vote. For, for somebody who doesn't live in New Zealand, uh, when I come to read official government documents these days, it's like you know, half of it is in a in a different language, and and I'm just lost as to what they're talking about. I don't know whether there's a, a Maori dictionary I should get, but this has been dramatic, right? In a very short space of time, the Maori language has suddenly infiltrated all sorts of documents, including Treasury, for instance. Could you explain some of that? Yes, that is uh, a correct perception. So when I arrived here 10 years ago, I could easily read government documents because they were written in English and I had learned that at school. It's become a little bit more difficult um, and not just for recently arrived foreigners like me, but ordinary New Zealanders probably can't read these documents either because I think from, from what I hear, only 2% of New Zealanders actually speak Te Reo Maori, but we now have documents that are effectively half Te Reo and with all sorts of different words. Even the ministries are now renamed. So, for example, the New Zealand Transport Agency is now called Waka Kotahi. We have a housing agency, Kainga Ora. So unless you're familiar with these terms, you wouldn't even know what these agencies are anymore. And the whole thing, of course, goes down to the name of the country. So in official government documents, you will not find that many references to New Zealand anymore. It will be called Aotearoa. So um, the change in language is almost complete now. It is kind of ironic. In 2015, then Prime Minister John Key had a referendum on flag change. That was quite a limited endeavor. So all he wanted to do was to change the flag and remove the Union Jack and have something a little bit more New Zealand, maybe with a coro or something like that. And even that was rejected by the New Zealand population. And it was a really kind of symbolic and relatively meaningless thing in comparison. Well, seven years on, and they're changing everything about the country, including the name of the country, and nobody's ever asked about it. So how do ordinary Kiwis react to this? Are they up in arms? Are they all over talkback radio? Well, there are two responses you get from Kiwis. One is in private and the other one is in public. In private, they will tell you that they don't understand anymore what's happening. They don't recognize the country in which they've lived sometimes for decades anymore because it feels like a foreign place. The place has changed so much and people are unhappy with the direction of travel. The public response is different because in public, nobody wants to admit that they feel that way because they fear that they might be labeled racist for opposing any of these developments. And so it's a very unhealthy thing. I think if you polled New Zealanders asking them whether they still feel able to say what they really think in public, I suspect a large majority, maybe 80, 90% of people would say that they don't say, dare to say anymore in public what they really think, which again, is very unhealthy for democracy. China, of course, is ever present in our discussions these days, particularly with the tension around Taiwan. How do you think the New Zealand government has taken the threat of China? Um, perhaps we could listen first to Jacinta Ardern herself addressing the Lowy Institute in Sydney. While we all have a concern, and rightly so, about any moves towards militarisation of our region that must surely be matched by a concern for those who experience the violence of climate change. Well, there she is, putting climate change on a par with tensions with China. Elsewhere in the speech, she says things 
are not black and white in geopolitics. We shouldn't force other countries to take sides. Uh, to us, that sounds like a, a country that's uh, in, the, in the throes of appeasing China. Am I right? Yes, um, you're right. I mean, with our prime minister, it depends what speechwriter she had for the day, because you can hear very different things about China in the West from our prime minister. So she turned up, of course, at the NATO summit in Madrid um, about a month ago and delivered a very good speech, I thought, on standing together in the West and confronting the challenges of Russia and China. Just a few weeks later, then turning up in Australia, speaking the Lowy Institute, she had completely changed her tune and suddenly it sounded like she wanted to really make up with China. She gave another speech actually in Auckland just about a week ago at a China-New Zealand business forum and again, sounded completely different and basically made up with China. So um, it depends on what speechwriter she has for the day. She speaks to her different audiences. So she sounds very different when she speaks to NATO. She sounds different when she speaks at the White House. And she sounds different when she speaks to a foreign audience, mainly with the Chinese business people in Auckland. So there is no consistency in our approach. What I would say is actually that for a long time, there have been question marks over New Zealand's reliability as a partner in the greater concert of Western powers. Um, for example, we are part of the Five Eyes Alliance. We are part of a network of security and intelligence sharing with our partners in Australia and Canada and Britain and America. Well, actually, is it really Five Eyes left or is it four and a half eyes or maybe four eyes? The other partners have some concerns about our reliability because we are no longer really automatically siding with our partners in that constellation. So they've actually asked New Zealand to do more, to do more than just a bit of intelligence sharing, but actually taking some initiative jointly on foreign policy issues that New Zealand has refused. So that is a change. It's actually a change just over the last couple of years because before that, of course, with the coalition and New Zealand first involved with Foreign Minister Winston Peters back then, there was a lot more pro-American um, out of the coming out of the New Zealand government. There was talk of a Pacific reset where um, our Foreign Minister Winston Peters wanted to actually work more closely with our Pacific partners. Um, because we want to actually counteract the threat of China in the region. That has changed now that Labour is in power on its own without Winston Peters. Oliver, thank you very much for keeping us up to date with New Zealand, indeed alerting us to some of the things over there, because as you point out, when it comes to China and strategic influence, then there's no more important, near, no more closer partner in terms of geographic proximity than New Zealand. It's important that we stay solid, of course, in defiance of Chinese uh, uh, belligerence, but economically too. Thank you, Oliver. We hope to have you back on Battleground again soon. Anytime, Nick. Great to be with you. At ADH TV, we're passionate about diversity and inclusion. We love diverse opinions and we want to include them on our shows. So I want to hear from you if you've got something on your mind, whether you agree with me or not. You can just send me an email to nickcater at ADH. TV. That's Nick with a K, Cater beginning with a C. Nick Cater at ADH.TV. This week I wrote in The Australian about Chris Bowen's energy policy and his fantastical net zero targets and his unmet promise of lowering the average Australian family's energy bill. Promises we've heard far too many times before. Mark wrote, can we please stop referring to solar panels and wind farms as renewables? They are weather-dependent generators, nothing more. Dumping millions of tonnes of solar panels into landfills is not renewable. 
the terminology is misleading and deceptive. Vince says the only reason nuclear is not being considered is that too many rent-seeking financiers with their tongues hanging out to get to the sticky get their sticky fingers on government guaranteed profits from investing in subsidised renewables to meet Chris Bowen's target. Bowen is the useful idiot aider and abetter of these rent-seeking billionaires. Stephen says. Chris Bowen does not operate in the real world. He's never had a position that wasn't a political appointment and he has no understanding of much at all. He's loud, opinionated and regularly wrong. This is why the government kept him on a muzzle during the election campaign. Bowen would be out of his depth in a puddle. <laughs> Kevin says, Chris Bowen reminds me of a TV salesman I came across recently. Bombastic in his attitude and very little knowledge of the product he was trying to sell. Obviously, I went unwhere, unwhere, elsewhere, but we're stuck with Bowen when it comes to energy. Marcus says, China is rubbing its hands with glee as we purchase solar panels and wind turbines from them to decarbonise the economy. Albo's promise to bring more manufacturing to Australian shores will be difficult if we don't have base load reliable power supply. Time to bring on the debate of nuclear energy. Here, here. Rod says, Australia's energy policy is incoherent. Talk about blind faith. Faith that we can cover the country with wind and solar farms without dire consequences for the environment will prove to be a terrible deception. Worse, by the time the environmental disaster is, is at its peak, we'll be too poor to fix it. Well, thank you all for tuning in to Battleground. And if you've been watching, thank you. An ADH production that runs every Friday at 8pm. Join me, Nick Cater, as we discuss the hot policy issues with some of the great global minds. If you'd like to get in touch, don't forget, have your say at nickcater at adh.tv. Nickcater at adh.tv. And also head over to the ADH TV app to stream Battleground directly to you on demand, as often as you want, for free. Thank you very much, and I'll see you all next time.